Morning all. Hope you're well and recovered from Wednesday night. I must admit, it just feels like it makes my job slightly easier this morning, not having a World Cup final this afternoon that we're worried about. We can focus completely on uh, what we want to focus on today, the Passover. And you might not be aware of it, but actually today is the halfway point in our sermon series, Journey to the Promised Land. It finishes when the Israelites arrive in Israel. But of all the passages that we will have covered by the end, arguably today's is the most famous. For despite the fact that it happened three and a half thousand years ago, Jewish people still mark the Passover every year, as I'm sure we know. And Jesus made a huge deal out of it too. He saw his own imminent death as the fulfilment of it, which must have been an astonishing thing to hear him say. And he shared a Passover meal with his disciples the night before he died and shared just how important that was to him. And some Christian denominations, not the Church of England particularly, but some denominations celebrate a Passover every year as well. And we did it, albeit in a more informal way, on Maundy Thursday this year. So we're thinking about a hugely significant event today within both Christianity and Judaism, which had colossal implications for the rest of human history. For without the Passover, there would have been no nation of Israel. But with it, we have the theological context in which the sacrificial death of Jesus would subsequently make sense. So it's important historically, it's important theologically, But today I also want to use it as a springboard for reflecting on where we are at as a church. The Passover night was a moment of decision for those Israelite families. So I want to finish by sharing my thoughts on the decision we need to take as a church if we're to see God's vision fully fulfilled. So that's where we're heading, but first let's pray. Father, we invite you into this time together now. Father, would you bring your word alive? Father, would you equip us to see what it is you're calling us to? Why we truly do believe this is the most important thing in our lives. And Father, would you begin to show us, practically speaking, what that looks like for each one of us here today. Amen. So, let's start with the story, which of course is much longer than the one we heard read, although the passage was fairly long and beautifully read, I should say. Thank you, Ian. For last week, we were still in Exodus 4, and uh, Moses was still in Midian, and as you might remember, he was asking God, please, to send someone else. But in the subsequent chapters, Moses gave in, and uh, he did return to Egypt, and uh, God gave him instructions on what he needed to say to Pharaoh, And then Moses shared that with um, all of the elders of the Israelites. And and that's a wonderful moment uh, when that's recorded for us because we're told that all of the elders bowed down and worshipped God, thrilled that the Lord had heard their cries of distress. What a moment of unity that must have been and how it must have encouraged Moses to do something he was frankly terrified of doing. So that had been the easy bit. What Moses then needed to do was go to Pharaoh and make this request. And these are the words given to him. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. To which Pharaoh replied, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And as as every child who's passed through Sunday school, or the children's groups as we call them now, um, will know, uh, what followed were the plagues, water turning to blood, frogs, lice or gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locust, darkness, and finally, and uh, tragically of all, the death of the firstborn. And it was, of course, the last of these from which the Passover gets its name. God told the Mo- Moses that the Israelites should mark their doorposts with blood at the top and at the sides. From the lamb's blood that they will have slaughtered a perfect, unspotted lamb, so that the angel of death would pass over their houses and spare them from this plague. A hugely uh, symbolic act, which will obviously relate to Jesus a little bit later on. And as the passage told us, when the plague struck and Pharaoh's own firstborn was struck down, he at last gave in and told Moses and the Israelites to go at once. And they left in such a rush that their bread did not have time to rise. That's why during the Passover, Jewish people eat unleavened bread. But what they did have time to do, remarkably, as the end of our passage explained, was to plunder the Egyptians, who gave them what they asked for, gold, silver, and clothing, a sign of God's generosity and of the Lord softening their hearts to the God who had proven himself as real as the one true God, which suggests that there actually was a spiritual impact even on the Egyptians. For Pharaoh, interestingly, asked for a blessing of Moses before they go in verse 38. And Sorry, in verse 38 we read also that many other people who weren't part of the Israelites actually went out of Egypt with them. Lots of non-Jews and presumably some Egyptians as well. For the truth is, whenever the Egyptians and other nations had cooperated with what God was doing, when they'd actually feared the God of Israel themselves, they had known blessing. That was true, wasn't it? You heard a few weeks ago at the time of Joseph. But it was also true actually in the plague of hail, where we read in chapter 9 that those officials of the Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord responded to the warning and saw their slaves and livestock saved. And they are reminders that we see in the Passover the two essential aspects of God's character. On the one hand, his justice, which meant that sin needed to be punished. Sin is serious. And the Egyptians' treatment of Israel, frankly, had been appalling, disgraceful, barbaric, as cruel as you can possibly imagine. And yet, on the other hand, we have God's mercy. God had protected his people and delivered them out of the bondage of slavery. Despite their own sinfulness, he had heard their prayers and answered them. Which is why the Passover meal, from then on, whenever it was celebrated, it was a celebration. Despite the awful plagues and destruction that were brought, the Passover points to the compassion and care of God, the love of God, as well, of course, as to the future Messiah, 
and God's ultimate act of rescue for the whole of mankind. For the Passover itself wasn't the end of the story. The Israelites still sinned, and for that reason, the first generation, Moses included, didn't make it to the promised land. Moses just saw it from a distance before he died. And the Passover didn't deal with sin once and for all. It would be the Day of Atonement that we'll look at next month that provided a mechanism for that. A mechanism for the forgiveness of sin on an ongoing basis. On that same principle of a sacrifice of a spotless lamb. But even that was only ever temporary and effective for Jews. For it was only in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus that the Passover found its true meaning as a type, a prefiguring of that final sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The one perfect, spotless human being. He was the Lamb of God. Ultimately, the Passover Lamb who would end the need for any further sacrifices. And that would be effective for all people, for all time. Anyone who put their faith in him including, of course, today, many millions of people in Egypt, now part of the universal people of God. They, too, were brought home. And yet, though salvation is by grace alone and not through human effort, the right response is always the wholehearted pursuit of godliness. And I was really struck when I was looking at uses of the Passover imagery in the New Testament by this short passage from 1 Corinthians 5 and the way it uses the language of the Passover about how we as Christians are called to live. So it goes like this. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the whole yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's powerful, isn't it? We are now the Passover people. So if we take all this and summarise what we've learned about our own lives from this Passover story, what do we have? The knowledge that sin is serious and we all need rescuing, every one of us. It's the blood of Jesus that will save us. Just as the blood of the Lamb saved the Israelites. And that the right response to that is always godliness, holy living, out of gratitude for the love and mercy of God. That God's aim in rescuing the Israelites from slavery was always mission. To see others come to know Israel's God too. And that would ultimately be fulfilled through Jesus, through Pentecost, and the ongoing mission of the church. We are now part of that story. So then, our call is to be missional too. For if the gospel really is true, as I know we believe it is, then it truly is the greatest news ever. So then surely it has to be shared. That has to be the right thing to do. That has to be the most important thing to do. And to do that we need to be prayerful. For only prayer changes hearts, whether our own 
or those of others. And our call is to be godly because no one's going to want to follow the God we believe in if it doesn't change the way we live. We need to be godly and we need the power of prayer to transform us into closer likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ every day. In other words, praying, connecting with others outside the church, growing our three vision priorities as it happens as a church. And I want to say a little bit more about them now. Now, when I shared those vision priorities, it was the end of November. We did it over two weeks. And I know there was a really enthusiastic response across the church and a real sense that they were the three priorities, both achievable and yet also ambitious. And I think if you flip down, they should appear. Oh, well, you know what they are? Praying, connecting and growing. We then set to work in the spring on the aspect of that task that we felt was hardest, connecting with those outside the church with a view to sharing our faith. For our own survey in that vision process of the congregation, as well as a much larger survey the diocese did a year earlier, and indeed a lot of national research in this decade uh, as well, have all shown that actually the biggest challenge that Christians today in the UK face is a lack of confidence in sharing their faith. It reflects the reality of secularisation. It reflects the reality of pluralism and political correctness. It takes courage to wear your faith on your sleeve today. So you'll remember we got Michael Harvey to come, who came twice, he focused on the resistance within ourselves to sharing our faith. And he pushed us through that to embracing a culture of invitation. I'll never forget that moment when he asked us again, what were the things stopping us from doing this? And we realised that second time around that it was actually the excuses that we make, which we were no longer convinced of ourselves. Such a, a powerful moment on that workshop day. And then we built on the excellent fruitfulness on the frontline course that we did in the autumn Uh, that helped us see the opportunities we have when we're not at church, with the Becoming a Contagious Christian course um, at the second half of last term. Now, I must admit that particular course was a struggle for some, partly because of the cultural differences we have uh, compared to America, where it was written, and also the fact that it was 20 years old. The truth is, secular Britain today is a very different context to American society then. But it also did helpfully push us further out of our comfort zone, helping us to think through practically how we could fruitfully share our faith. And I need to tell you that lying behind all of those decisions was a prophetic word that uh, was shared uh, for me uh, in a prayer meeting uh, in the second half of last year. And uh, I'm not going to embarrass the person who shared it, but I haven't forgotten it at all. It's just been with me that whole time. And uh, and the the basic picture was... uh, of me, dressed up in these highly ornate robes, which were covered in jewels, with uh, a sort of scepter, uh, which was also covered in jewels. Um, I think I was probably wearing a a jewel uh, festooned hat as well. And I had this big uh, scepter with jewels that I was bashing on the ground three times. And after the third time, these cracks in the ground appeared, and there were green shoots of of, uh, plants coming through. And uh, when you get pathetic words like this, uh, it takes a little while to let them sink in. And and if we're fortunate, 
what God then does is gives us a real clear sense in our spirit of what the interpretation is. And that was what happened to me on that day. I felt that, uh, well, first of all, that God's got a sense of humour, as I don't like jewellery and I'm not a fan of robes, so that was interestingly uh, and amusing enough. But, of course, there was a serious message. The act, action of striking the ground, I felt, was a metaphor of a challenging message, one that not everyone wanted to hear. The three strikes, I felt, was a metaphor for saying it multiple times, and we've certainly done that. And the green shoots were a sign for me that after persistence, it would start to bear fruit. And that, folks, was actually what we began to see. The evidence for me of that were the phenomenal turnouts we had for the pancake party and the Easter extravaganza family events just before Easter, and then the really good number of guests that people brought to the Passover supper, the Good Friday and Easter Day services. That was the vision at work. We were praying for those we could connect with, We were boldly inviting them to events that we knew they would enjoy and where the gospel seeds would be sown. And we were growing in our ministry, growing our fringe, growing our connections to those outside the church as a result. It wasn't rocket science. But when we were intentional about it and when we prayed about it and when we boldly put it into practice, good stuff started to happen. Now, let me be honest with you. Since then, I think the conclusion we've come to in the leadership team is that we've lost a bit of focus on those things. And that's been for a range of reasons, including at this time of year, obviously, people going away, people being off sick, the World Cup, a sermon series focused less explicitly explicitly on our vision, as well as one or two other things. But what I felt prompted to say by God today to us is this. Let's recommit to that vision. Because as the Growing Leaders course puts it, vision always leaks. It's as if vision sits in a bucket with a hole in it. That's where we put it. And as time goes on, it starts to disappear. If we're to really work out a vision, put it into practice, and have it uh, direct our, our course, then we need to constantly look at it afresh. Constantly remind ourselves of it. Or to put it another way, the main thing we need to remind ourselves to do is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which rescues people from slavery to sin and from spiritual death today. That is the reality that we live in. And that trumps everything, even Trump. Now, of course... The events of that first Passover were pretty dramatic. The choice the Israelites needed to make to follow those commands and escape their dreadful circumstances were vital. A no-brainer. But so surely is ours. And just as for that first generation of Israelites, the choices that we make will affect many generations to come too. Whether there will still be a church in this country Because we know about the demographic time bomb. But we also know that in a nation facing so much uncertainty, so much division, so much worry, and increasing levels of vitriol towards people uh, that we don't agree with, the good news of Jesus has never been needed more. Agreed? 
Absolutely. It's needed. It's the one thing that can heal us as a nation, that can unite us, that can change people's hearts, which is always the beginning of cultural change for the better. And let's connect with this passage in this way too. The number one thing the Israelites needed to know in this story was they couldn't stay where they were. They weren't going to get to the promised land unless they stepped out in faith and went for it. And that was true of the England World Cup team as well, wasn't it? I think we've all enjoyed watching them. But the crucial decision they made was just to go for it. In boldness. Not worry about their fears. And they did really well as a consequence. And it's the same for us. Our promised land is not a World Cup win. It's not escaping slavery in Egypt. But what it is, is a vibrant church full of prayerful, passionate Christians passing on our faith to the next generations. That's what we want, isn't it? Of course it is. And it's certainly what God wants. But to get there, we can't stay where we are, despite all the temptations to do so. Because actually where we are is not as uncomfortable as slavery in Egypt. It's pretty comfortable. And so despite the temptations to stay there as a little Christian bubble, enjoying ourselves together but having no impact on those outside, not passing on the faith to the next generations. That's what we've got to avoid. We can't stay where we are. The future of the church demands it. And to be brutally honest, if we want to have a good feeling about ourselves, if we want to know that we've run the race, that we've lasted the course, then we should do everything we can, every sinew of our body, to move forward and reach the promised land of what God is calling us to do. So I want to finish today with three challenges to us all. The first, will you start praying again for five? Five people you feel God is laying on your heart to connect with outside the church. If you're not sure who they are, ask him again. We can all have five. Secondly, will you ask God to prompt you how he wants you to do that? Whether it's inviting them to events or gatherings or simply investing in your relationship with them. And here's an example or two of the events we can invite them to. The holiday club for children. As it happens, that decision a year ago was made to look at God's big rescue, which turns out being it to be exactly what we're looking at as the adult church as well. So that's the holiday club, a fantastic opportunity. September the 12th, we've got an outreach event here in the church uh, called Would You Adam and Eve It? It's a comic uh, retelling of the story of Genesis and Exodus. Again, we didn't tell them to do that because we were doing it as a sermon series. That's what they were already doing. A great opportunity at the right time, just before Alpha starts at the end of September. Who could you invite to that event and then to Alpha? So we've got opportunities. We've got people. Let's ask God and let's step out in faith as he prompts us what he wants us to do. And here's the third challenge then. Will you commit to growing again in your own walk with Jesus? Asking God how he wants you to do that. Because the default is, let's be honest folks, is that we shred water. Or worse still, we go backwards. That's what we do. Unless we don't put personal growth as a priority. So, 
here are a few suggestions about how you could do that. Things that might work and help you to grow. First of all, we just trained up a group of mentors. Would you like to have a mentor for six months to a year helping you to grow in your faith? It doesn't matter whether you're a new Christian or an old Christian, whether uh, whatever your situation is. If you want a mentor, we can provide one for you. What a great opportunity that is. If you're interested, talk to me, talk to Simon, talk to Liz Ricketts, talk to David Leeper, who ran that mentoring course, or email mentoring at stpaulscamp.co.uk. So that's the mentoring. Second, could you start reading the Bible more regularly, or listening to sermons online, or Christian music, or whatever else helps you to grow? using Bible devotional guides, whatever helps you to have more coming in through the week. Or could you join a life group if you're not in one already? And if you are, could you commit to coming more regularly? It's like exercise. If you've tried to get yourself fit, you know what I mean. Having significant Christian input two or three times a week makes a huge difference compared to once or twice a month. The Christian life isn't meant to be pedestrian and dull and joyless. It's meant to be exciting, fast-growing and fun. But we only get out of it what we put in. Prayer and intentionality brings the results. That's the truth. Drifting is Satan's desired outcome for us, not God's. So, I need to finish. And I want to do so with some Bible verses, actually, that Simon shared with me on Friday as we were getting ready for this service. They follow the amazing summary of the faith of Moses and all the other Old Testament heroes that we see in Hebrews 11. And we refer uh, to those verses at various points through this series. But the exhortation I want to leave with us now is at the beginning of Hebrews 12. And it says this, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a crowd of witnesses, such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's bang on the money, isn't it? That's what we need to do, to persevere in the light of all of those who've gone before us and walked the walk, suffered for it, but seen the harvest and a blessing to generations upon generations to come. So I want to suggest that we respond to this in three ways. First, we're going to have a time of silence, just to offer our own prayers to God. And as we do that, the band will come up to the front. Then we're going to sing the creed this morning, recommitting ourselves to the fundamentals of Christianity, the central tenets of our faith. And then Anne's going to lead us in our intercessions, praying into some of our opportunities and vision priorities and interceding for our country and our world. And it certainly needs that right now. So let's have that time for silent prayer now, a minute or or two, just for you to do business with God 
personally. And we'll sing the creed song together and then we'll pray together.